Well, hey, everyone. So great to be with you all on this Resurrection Sunday. Last year, we came to you from a cemetery, which felt like a strange but appropriate setting for an Easter message. This year, we're out at the Old Stone Church in West Boylston, Mass. But it's a pretty cool spot. And it does occur to me that like the tomb on Resurrection morning, this Old Stone Church is empty. (laughs) So there you go. All right, let's begin with a question. If someone offered you an eighth day of the week, what would you do with it? Now think about it for a minute. An extra day tacked on after the standard seven. What would you do with it? Most people say they would use it to get a head start on their work for the week to come or to catch up on the work they didn't finish in the normal seven days. Others say they would use the extra day for something other than work, something fun, something they don't usually have enough time for, sleeping in, binge-watching, anything, uh, playing a leisurely game of golf. And, and then others say they would spend the time with people, friends or family they, they tend to rush by in the press of a week. Now, some of us will remember the Beatles singing that even eight days a week are not enough to show I care. I know. Okay, Boomer, let's move on. Right. The interesting thing about all these responses is that in every case, the eighth day simply becomes an extension of the seven days. Whether you spend that eighth day working, playing, or catching up with people, it ends up being just one more day doing the same things you'd been doing all the other days. Which brings to mind the classic Bill Murray film, Groundhog Day. A TV weatherman named Phil inexplicably finds himself waking up to the same day over and over and over again. Same music on the radio, same people crossing his path, same assignment at work. He tries everything you can think of to escape the tedium of it. But no matter what he does, he always wakes up on Groundhog Day in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania. Now, it's a movie that came to mind often during our COVID lockdown, when every day felt the same as the one before. Well, at one point, Phil moans to a friend, what would you do if you were stuck in the same place and every day was the same and it didn't mean anything? Ever feel like that? Like you're living the same old story? A story that's going nowhere or toward the same dead end? An unsatisfying job? A struggling relationship? A destructive habit? Maybe even a floundering faith journey? However things might be going in your personal life, what's happening in the world these days could feel like a global version of Groundhog Day. I was uh, comparing sermon notes this week with Pastor John from our partner church up in Amherst, New Hampshire. And he pointed out that in the first half of the 20th century, our nation was hit with a global pandemic, a world war, and a Great Depression. And here we are in the first decades of the 21st century, and we're living through a global pandemic, 
a warmongering superpower in Europe, and economic inflation so bad that Tom Brady had to come out of retirement to pay for a tank of gas. That was John's joke, and it was just too good not to use. Well, thankfully, we haven't seen the, the levels of pain and loss that, that people experienced during the Spanish flu or, or a full-blown world war. But it's all too eerily familiar. And it would be easy to look at recent events and conclude that history is once again repeating itself. Caught in a cycle of brokenness from which there's, it feels like there's no escape. So whether we're talking personally or globally, it's a terrible feeling to be stuck. So let me ask you again. What would you do if someone offered you an eighth day of the week? Not just another day filled with more of the same, but a new day to experience something better. Well, that's the promise of Easter. And I'd like to explore it with you for a few minutes today. So let's jump right into the story as Matthew tells it in chapter 28 of his gospel. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. Uh, the women who set out for the tomb that morning had, had come to the end of a very bad week. It had begun with such promise the previous Sunday when Jesus rode into town to a roaring crowd ready to make him king. And their expectations heightened on Monday when Jesus cleaned house in the temple, sent feathers and Pharisees flying in every direction. On Tuesday and Wednesday, Jesus threw it down with the religious leaders right out in the open and spoke prophetically about the coming day of the Lord. But on Thursday night, things took a turn and began to unravel fast. His disciples bickered around the Passover table, even as Jesus predicted their betrayal and denial. He spoke about pain and suffering and blood and death. A few hours later, he was under arrest. And by Friday afternoon, he'd been brutally beaten, falsely accused, unjustly sentenced, and nailed to a cross as darkness fell on the land. So imagine how it must have felt to wake up that next morning, Saturday, and realize that it was over. All their hopes and dreams crushed. And it wasn't just that it was over. It had ended like all the others. Just another wannabe Messiah who gathered a following, stirred up hopes and expectations, only to be struck down by the swift and brutal wrath of Rome. They'd seen it too many times. Hypocrisy, injustice, and death had won again. But, but they wanted to go to the tomb anyway. And we understand. I mean, we've all done that, right? Gone out to a grave to grieve someone we've loved and lost. 
And it never feels good. It never feels right. And after a few minutes or hours, we turn and walk away. Now, maybe we're glad we went, but nothing's changed. They're still gone. As I drove out this morning here, my journey was interrupted by a funeral procession, a line of cars making their way to a nearby cemetery. We drove past blooming forsythia and, and green grass, the whole earth coming to life again. And then here were, were these family members and friends going to lay a loved one to rest, someone they had loved and lost. We, we never get used to it, do we? Never feels right. We're tired of our stories, every one of them, ending in death. And that's how it must have felt to the women as they headed out to the tomb early that morning in the dark. Nothing at all had changed. It, it was Groundhog Day all over again. But what they didn't know was that this week had an eighth day. Uh, look again at the opening words of Matthew's account. After the Sabbath, at dawn, on the first day of the week, it's a time stamp. Uh, like the date that used to appear on those home videos. Matthew is very deliberately calling attention to the chronology of what's happening. After the Sabbath. So he's pointing out the obvious, that it happened on the day after the seventh day. At dawn. So it's morning of that day after the seventh day. On the first day of the week. So it's the first day of a new week, but it flows somehow out of the previous week. Three times Matthew calls attention to this eighth day. And he's not the only one. Each of the four gospel writers does the same thing. Mark writes, when the Sabbath was over, very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise. Luke tells us, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning. And then John, early on the first day of the week. All four gospel writers make a clear and pointed reference to the fact that what's about to happen happened on the morning of an eighth day. What's that all about? Well, it turns out that among the Jewish people, there was a long-standing sense of mystery and expectation around the eighth day. Jewish boys were named and circumcised on their eighth day of life. The Festival of Tabernacles lasted seven days, but it ended with a celebration on the eighth day when they left their tabernacles. And these eighth-day traditions were linked to the seven days of creation. Genesis tells us that God created the heavens and the earth in seven days, only to have it spoiled 
by the fall of humanity into sin and death. So, so the Jews believed there had to be an eighth day coming in which God would bring about a new creation, a restored heaven and earth. So when the people of Israel wandered in the desert for those 40 years, they always pitched their tents facing, facing east toward the sunrise in expectation of that eighth day. And when they built their temple in Jerusalem, they oriented it to the east toward the coming day. And when the high priest offered sacrifices, after seven days of preparation, he always faced eastward on that eighth day. So could it be that the gospel writers are calling attention to the dawn of this new day because it was somehow connected to that ancient belief in an eighth day of creation? Well, well let's, let's keep reading. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him, they became like dead men. Now, there's a lot happening we could explore here, but the message behind all of it is that something different is happening, something new. The earthquake, the angel, the rolled away stone, trained guards literally falling down on the job. None of it is normal. None of it is an everyday occurrence. Something unusual is happening. Something supernatural. Let's keep reading. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. He is not here. He has risen. Talk about the dawn of something new. How about something the world had never seen before? Here's a story that ends in life instead of death, victory instead of defeat. Here's hope instead of disappointment. Here's a week that has eight days, not the usual seven. And don't miss the echoes of the creation story from all the way back in Genesis. Remember those words? The earth was formless and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. What's another word for void? Empty, right? Like a tomb without a body? And what was the first thing God did to set creation in motion? He spoke, right? Let there be. Kind of like an angel saying, He has risen, now I have told you. And what was the first thing God created? The thing that transformed the darkness? Light, right? Like, like a flash of lightning, like the sun rising in the east at dawn on the first day of a new week. Do you see what's happening here? It is nothing less than a new creation. Now, were Matthew and these other writers aware of all these echoes, these connections? I don't think so. I think they were just describing what 
happened. Did the women understand the the layered meaning behind all of these things? I don't think so. They were just trying to process the most remarkable news any person had ever heard. I'm not sure they even fully believed it all. I mean, who could? You know, we sometimes think that that ancient people were more gullible than modern, enlightened people like us. That they they were naive and superstitious. They would have been far more ready to accept news like this. Not at all. They had seen more death up close and personal, than you or I will ever see. They knew how ugly it was, how final. And and they'd seen a dead Jesus, up close and personal. As his limp form was taken down from the cross, bloodied and battered and pale as dusk. They'd followed his body out to the tomb, seen it laid out on a slab like a sack of flour. They watched that stone roll into place with a sickening thud. Now, they would have been as stunned and suspect as you and I would have been at the news that Jesus had somehow risen, that he was alive. Now, they they, they may have hoped it was true, but, but they had no proof. They hadn't actually seen him. So, Matthew tells us, The women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. So their confused feelings are obvious. Uh, On the one hand, they want to believe it. At the same time, they're afraid to believe it. Probably afraid they're only going to be disappointed again. But suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. (laughs) I love that. Like, hey, what up? (laughs) I mean, he had to be smiling when he said it, right? They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Now they believed. Now they knew Christ had risen. Everything had changed. It was the dawn of something new. The eighth day. Now, we asked earlier if Matthew and the other writers were conscious of the connections between resurrection morning and the creation account and the tradition of the eighth day. We don't know, obviously, what was happening in their minds, but, but I don't think so. These references just feel too subtle for that. If they were trying to make those connections, if they were concocting a narrative, as some people have suggested, it would have been more obvious. They would have said what they said in so many other places. These things happen to fulfill the scriptures. I think they were simply recording what people saw and heard that morning in accounts that sound authentic and uncontrived. Now, do I believe they were inspired by the Holy Spirit as they wrote, so that their words and memories held meaning that would later be understood? 
absolutely. And it didn't take long for the early Christians to discern those meanings. Because almost immediately, they began worshiping on, the, on that eighth day, Sunday. In spite of the fact that as Jews, they had worshiped all their lives on the seventh day. They gave a name to that day, the Lord's Day. And they came to believe that it was, in fact, the first day of the new creation. Listen to this. In, in, in one of the earliest Christian writings, a document called the Epistle of Barnabas, written somewhere between 770 and maybe 130 A.D., we read these words. I will make a beginning of the eighth day, that is, the beginning of another world. For that reason also we keep the eighth day with joyfulness, as the day on which Jesus rose again from the dead. And here we are, these thousands of years later, gathering with joyfulness on Sunday mornings, and especially on Easter Sunday, wearing new shirts and all, to celebrate Christ's victory over death. Because it was at dawn on that eighth day that God began to make all things new, beginning with the lives of those disappointed women who on that resurrection morning were changed from grief-stricken mourners into bearers of the best news the world has ever heard. Change maker. That's been our theme these past months as, as we've walked through the events of Holy Week, the, the final week of Jesus' earthly life. And week by week, we've been discovering the changes Jesus made and is making in our lives and in the world. He's changed the way we think about power and religion and prayer and politics. But today we discover that Holy Week has eight days and that on that eighth day, Jesus changed the way we think about everything. First of all, the eighth day changes the way we think about this life. It means we don't have to be stuck in the same place, doing the same thing, and none of it meaning anything. The eighth day isn't just another day, it's a new day. A day unencumbered by the past, by what we've done, or by what's been done to us. It's a day that that offers forgiveness for our failures, healing for our hurts, strength for our weaknesses, hope for our disappointments. Those women and the men who believed after them were changed that day and would go on to change the course of human history. Which leads us to the second change the eighth day makes. It changes the way we think about this world. That day was the first day of God's new creation. And just as he invited the first man and woman to join him in filling that first creation with life and goodness, he invites us to join him now in filling this new creation with peace and justice and beauty and love for the flourishing of all people everywhere. And while the church 
has made many mistakes along the way for which we need to repent and receive forgiveness. The Jesus movement continues to be the most transformative, most inclusive, most active force for good on the planet. Feeding the hungry, welcoming the refugees, delivering the addicted, caring for the sick, freeing the enslaved, protecting the vulnerable, and doing whatever is needed to restore the God-given dignity of every man, woman, and child. So the eighth day changes the way we think about this life, about this world, and it changes the way we think about the life to come. I received news of, of three deaths this past week. Two from this congregation and, and the other from a former church I served. Three people I knew and loved are gone. And this congregation feels poorer without Carolyn Masters and, and Harold Bueller. And my life feels thinner without my friend, Brad. We're tired of losing to this enemy called death. Easter means we don't have to lose anymore. There's an eighth day. Jesus didn't, didn't just come back from the dead. He conquered death. Trampling over death by death, as the song goes. Death doesn't have to be the end of the story. If Christ has been raised, then we too can be raised, Scripture tells us. Not, not just to this life, but to the life to come, to a new heaven and a new earth where there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. I'm told that, that in old English graveyards, the dead were always laid to rest facing east toward the rising sun in expectation of their eighth day. One of the classic Easter hymns, we sang it earlier in our service today, was written a few hundred years ago by Charles Wesley. Christ the Lord is risen today. Now, he wrote that triumphant hymn nearly 300 years ago. In a time when death's dominion was especially grim. When the average life expectancy was 37 years Wesley himself was the father of eight children, five of whom died in infancy. In a new devotional I'm using, a journalist named Carol Ahrens writes this. I imagine Charles Wesley walking from home to church on Easter morning, passing through the churchyard with those five small headstones facing resolutely east, entering through the doors of the sanctuary to sing his own words back to God. Love's redeeming work is done, fought the fight, the battle won. Wesley knew how to grieve as one with hope. He knew the Son of Man would one day split the eastern sky with power and authority to raise the dead. Alleluia. Remember that 
funeral procession that I ended up following on my way out here today? Well, it turns out it was headed toward that same cemetery we preached from last Easter, where we proclaimed Christ's victory over death, where we learned that every story doesn't have to end at the grave. The eighth day has changed everything. This life, this world, and the life to come. But before we finish today, I'd like you to hear the story of, of how one person has experienced the change we've been talking about today. Kathleen moved to our area and found her way to Grace Chapel back in the fall. She shared her story with a few of us recently, and I asked her to share a bit of it with you today. So let's listen for a few minutes, and then I'll come back and wrap things up. I'll never forget the day my world bottomed out. It was 2006 and I was returning from a week out of town, eager to see my family, my partner, and our five-year-old son. But when I arrived home, I could tell that something was wrong. We need to talk, my partner said. As soon as he began, I knew what was coming next. Tears streamed down my face and I could only hear fragments of his words. He had met someone else. He had cheated on me. A month later, our relationship was over. I was heartbroken, angry, and grieving. Why did this happen to me? Had I done something wrong? Had I not done enough? Getting through each day felt unbearable. Even a family reunion I counted on to lift my spirits ended with pain. And I left early feeling unsupported and alone. I was so desperate that I picked up a book from a friend a while back. It was a Christian book, and the author claimed that letting Jesus into your life could change everything. I knew about Jesus, or so I thought. I'd traveled the world and dabbled in all kinds of religions, but hadn't found anything satisfying. Jesus might have been a prophet, but I was skeptical of him and his followers. As I walked around my house that night, I looked in the mirror, thinking about what I read. My eyes were so sad, reflecting my empty heart. When I saw myself that way, something inside me said yes to the book's message. I had nothing to lose. I prayed the words from the book, surrendering 100% of my heart to Jesus, offering my sins to Him, forgiving those who sinned against me, and choosing to live from, for Jesus from this day forward. I wanted to see if there was any response after I said the prayer, and I felt a voice inside me say, now it's time to sleep. The next morning I was awoken by my son, who told me he had a dream about a man standing in the road showing him which way to go. I believed that he dreamed of Jesus. That morning, I felt a peace that was utterly unknown to me. The sunlight streamed through the windows, and even though my life was falling apart, I felt content. Since my partner's infidelity, I had been bitter and resentful and angry. But that day, I was able to feel love and kindness again. It was the most significant change 
I have ever experienced. My friends even said they could see it in my face. I looked different. I had a lot to learn. I wouldn't always feel perfect peace and it would still be a struggle to love and forgive, but that morning something new began. It has been almost 16 years since that morning and life has had plenty of ups and downs. My son has been through some dark times. My relationship with his father never healed. Gradually, I found it easier to handle my difficult emotions as I rely on God's spirit within me. I've also seen my priorities change. Before I became a Christian, I was concerned with myself and my career as an educator. Now I do the same tasks, but for different reasons. When I teach, I do it with a desire to serve others, to serve Jesus, and to fulfill God's purpose for my life. I believe God is still at work in all of our lives. Mine, my sons, his fathers, and the rest of my family who have grown in their faith over the years. By God's grace, I came through a situation that could have defined the rest of my life. I've been able to put down the anger and bitterness I carried around and face each day with love, joy, and hope. By her own admission, Kathleen had hit bottom. She'd been hurt and disappointed in the worst kind of ways. But after the witness of a friend and words from a writer she'd never met, she threw herself at the feet of a Jesus she had given up on. And when she woke the next morning, it was a new day. Something happened to her in the darkness, something mysterious and supernatural. And it changed everything. She's still facing some of those same challenges and disappointments. But now with a peace and a strength and a hope she never had before. And what happened to Kathleen can happen to you. But here's the thing. You'll never really experience that change until you've had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. And that's what it took for those women, right? Uh, they, they had the evidence of a resurrection, an empty tomb, the words of a messenger. But it wasn't until they encountered Christ personally that they came to believe. It was the same for the rest of the disciples. And they didn't believe until Jesus was standing right in front of them. It was the same for Thomas, who didn't believe until he could put his finger in Jesus' hands and feet and side. And it was the same for an enemy of the church named Saul, who didn't believe until the Spirit of Christ knocked him from his horse and opened the eyes of his heart. And some years later, he wrote these words, If anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. The old has gone. The new is here. So if you're tired of waking up to the same old, same old, been there, done that, groundhog kind of day. Why not try waking up to something new? To a day that promises forgiveness 
healing, deliverance, purpose, and hope for this life and the life to come. Because change happens when you wake up to the possibilities of a new life with God. Change happens when you wake up to the possibility of a new life with God. And if you find yourself curious but still a bit skeptical, you're not alone. Maybe you're intrigued by the Easter story and the evidence of the empty tomb. Maybe like Kathleen, you've been touched by the love and witness of a friend who's pointed you towards Jesus. Maybe Kathleen's story has opened you up to the possibility of something new in your life. The only logical thing to do is to take a closer look. Come and see, the angel said to the women. And we'd love to help you do that. You can come back next week and hear more. You can check out the Alpha Course beginning next week, online and in person. Or you can reach out to me personally at brian with a y at grace.org. It really was the week that changed everything. All it took was an eighth day. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the promise of this new day, this new season this new creation that you set in motion the day your son Jesus rose from the dead. We celebrate that day today. And Lord, we pray that you would wake us up to the possibilities of that new day. Each one of us listening here today, wake up your churches, wake up this world to the possibility of new life with you in this life and the life to come. We pray these things in the risen name of Jesus. Amen.